teacher's voice. As vozes do professor. As vozes do professor. Là aussi, il y a Wadi. La voix des enseignants. Bien, 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 bien. Eh, eh, eh. Teacher's voices. Teachers' Voices is a series of podcasts from Bold, the digital platform on learning and development, made of fascinating stories from teachers around the world, talking in their own words about their specific stories and context. In each episode, you will listen to inspiring conversations between international experts on learning and child development, and me, your host, Nina Alonso. For the past 10 years, I have been devoted to improving equal access to education. Now I want to share with you powerful stories from teachers talking in their own words about their experiences. Hi, and welcome to another episode of Teachers' Voices. In this episode, we will explore the challenges of teaching and learning under adverse conditions. Listen in as three educators share their inspiring stories about supporting children's learning in challenging conditions. Working with young refugees in the island of Lampedusa, Italy's southernmost point, supporting underserved students in the socially deprived neighborhood of the Bronx, New York, and teaching dance for social cohesion and children's well-being in Africa's largest slum, Kibera, Nairobi, Kenya. But first, we have the pleasure to welcome Willem Frankenhuis, who is an expert in developmental psychology, specialized in social cognitive skills and abilities that might be enhanced in harsh and unpredictable environments. Hello, William. Hi, Nina. It is great to count on your contribution today to introduce an episode of Teachers' Voices with stories of teachers supporting children's learning in challenging conditions. And so, William, tell me, as someone who has studied in depth factors that enable people who live in adverse conditions to make the most of their challenging life circumstances. I think from the intersection between developmental psychology and education, I'd like to ask you, why do you think it is important to take adversity into account when talking about supporting children's learning? Growing up in adverse conditions can affect children's learning in a number of ways. So when children grow up in adverse conditions, it often means that they are exposed to more stressors. Stressors are also major distractions for children. It reprioritizes them towards their immediate needs, being safe, having enough food, avoiding conflict or, you know, making the most of a friendship that's vital to their survival and well-being. And so for them, investing in education, which is sort of something that might pay off in the long term, could seem less important in their lived experience. Is it possible, do you think, that some skills and abilities of children can actually be enhanced in adverse learning environments? What does research say about that? Yes, that is the case. Children who grow up in adverse conditions need to solve, to some extent, different problems than children who grow up in safe, more stable environments. They might struggle to get food on the table. They might feel unsafe. They need to understand whether people in their environment are a threat or not, or whether they can rely on them or not. And for them, solving these problems is crucial. And so their minds are often devoted to solving these problems. And as they are being devoted to solving these problems, they can learn skills and abilities in that you know, problem-solving domain. Based on that, I wonder if there's 
techniques that teachers can learn or might be able to use in the classroom to help those who are learning under adverse conditions. One of the things we see in research is that making the information concrete and relevant to the lived experience of these children can sometimes enhance their performance. That's what we typically find. But also we do sometimes find that it can impair their performance and understanding when which happens is a challenge for future research. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I guess for teachers' development programs too. Absolutely. And so, you know, following that, that answer, are we able to design learning environments that can enable children to make the best use of their hidden talents? So there is research showing that children who grow up in in sort of less affluent circumstances have more of this communal mindset. And that if you try to teach them and if you measure their performance in a cooperative setting where they work with a team towards a shared goal, it actually benefits them uh, substantially compared with solving these problems individually by themselves. Thank you. Thank you very much. It was very, very interesting and inspiring. I, and I really think what you're sharing with us will enter in a very good dialogue with the teacher stories that we are going to listen in this episode. Thank you very much. I enjoyed it. With William's fascinating research in mind, it's now time to turn our attention to some dedicated educators working with children under particularly difficult circumstances. We start by listening to Nadia's story from the Bronx, New York City. Her teaching experience shows how teachers can work with underprivileged communities to create positive institutions that have a global impact. She spoke to me from her apartment in the Bronx about her pioneering work. Nadia first described how was her local context as a school leader and teacher. I taught uh, young people, even though they came from communities where there was a lot of violence and a lot of poverty, I still taught them leadership so that they understood how to advocate for themselves. I asked Nadia if she could share with us a teaching practice that was particularly pertinent for the kind of students she worked with, and she described both her experience and her students' feedback. You know what? I actually loved all of the subjects that I taught, but I think that the most exciting part of it was the project-based learning that I could incorporate into every subject area because it allowed the children to take ownership of their learning and it really pushed them to think critically. I asked Nadia about a particularly rewarding moment with her students. To see them want to learn to see them literally change the narrative of what it means to be a child in a poor community and people have this idea that they don't care, that they don't want to learn, or they're not capable of learning. They literally were proving those narratives wrong. And so for me, that was a sense of accomplishment. Nadia wanted to share with us her view on the importance of adapting to students' individual and collective struggles. I had a student who, a young man, 
The problem was is that he had so much trauma in his life that he just always appeared to be very angry, but it was simply because he was misunderstood and just dealing with a lot of pain. And I remember him coming to me and saying, apologizing for his actions and then being honest about how he felt that he was never good at anything. And so I um, would meet with him and we started reading together. It wasn't that he wasn't smart. He just needed someone to actually sit with him. But the people who should have been helping him wasn't doing it. I remember it was graduation and he cried. Even his mom cried. And he was like, I want to thank you for, for believing in me. And I know I wasn't the best kid ever. <laughs> I know I gave you a hard time. But you didn't see me as a problem or someone who was worth throwing away. You really believed in me. And for that young man, it literally saved him. And my intention wasn't to save him, but because of it, it kept him out of joining a gang. I still stay in contact with him. He's successful now. He, he's working. I asked Nadia about an experience that could illustrate her thoughts on supporting children's learning in adverse conditions. As a teacher and then later becoming a leader, like we have to redefine what education looks like in our schools and we need to make learning accessible in a way that it actually connects to children's lives. But if it doesn't, directly connect, how can we make those connections and be intentional about that, but then also providing them with the tools that they need. You know, the, the longstanding impact that teachers have is that we do things that we're passionate about, but from our heart, we pour into the lives of children, not knowing where that will lead. From New York, we travel all the way to the Mediterranean Sea, where we visit Deborah on the southernmost Italian island, Lampedusa. Here, Deborah organizes reading activities for young refugees in a simple but welcoming children's library built in front of the local school by the International Board on Books for Young People. Hello, Deborah. How are you? Hello, I'm fine. Thank you very much. Deborah describes the context and conditions that surround the refugee kids she works with. I don't think I've ever seen fear in my life so much. Once I was talking to one of these kids and I asked him if he, he thought he could go back. And he just said no, but he said it in such a frightful way. They, can, they cannot go back. Their way back is just burnt. They know that if they go back, something terrible will happen to their family. Uh, there, There's people at home that have given them money to travel that they want money back. Uh, their way back is just not, a, not an option. So they have to go forward. And the, once they're in Lampedusa, they think they've arrived. But forward from Lampedusa, it's just, just Europe and it's just terrible. Deborah told me about her work using wordless picture books with young people who arrive in difficult conditions in a local community with whom they cannot communicate. The island is a very rough place, very nice for holidays, but full of very complex situations. And it has taught us to 
understand borders much better. So borders are places that are very, very rich of emotions and, and, and stories and, and things that happen. So books arrive as a sort of super intense tool for them. It's very interesting to understand how they can connect with a book. So at the beginning, once there was a, a group of Tunisian children, they could, they could only speak Arab and I I cannot speak Arab. So finally, I found this book that's called Devine. It's a book in, Fre in French, but it doesn't have any words. So, And it's actually a, a game book. So you have to find, discover the differences between one page and the other. So as soon as we got caught into that game, the children understood that every book could be a different game. And they started looking at the books with something that could be interesting and it could give them a laugh or that could give them a story. So you, you have to connect with what clicks in someone and to make them understand that the book is something that opens up to a new world. I asked Deborah what her work means for her and for the children she works with. What I see is that they sort of get a moment of, of pause in, in their trip. It's a moment where you can stop and you can think, okay, I'm safe here. I can stay with these people and read a story or paint a picture. I can just stop. You know, when, when you leave your house, your home, your family, everyone to go somewhere that you've never seen and never imagined or people have taught you about and you've just made it up in your mind, there's so many difficulties and traumas and things that you didn't expect and you can't go back, you have to go uh, forward, you, you don't have anyone with you. I mean, finding a space where you can just even breathe is already something very extraordinary. And I can see their, their way of changing and then the things that happen to them afterwards. I am happy that they had this thing that helped them. Crossing the Mediterranean Sea to the continent of Africa, we travel to Kenya, where we meet Mike, a dance and drama teacher giving lessons to children and young people. Mike is speaking from a colorful community arts school in Kibera. It is Saturday morning, the busiest moment of the week, and he's surrounded by the chatter of the many children who go there to have a free good breakfast while some are already playing instruments and warming up before the dance class. Good morning, Mike. Yes, how are you doing? We started our conversation talking about Mike's personal motivation and background. I think I draw my inspiration and uh, motivation also in students. You see, I was brought up in the slums myself. Of course, life has always been hard for everyone, even anyone living in the informal settlements. Uh, they urge to find mentorship, they urge to find support. Mike told me about his deep engagement with his local community through his dance school's activities. And I asked him to tell me a little about his pupils. It's always exciting in the children because they say, yeah, I am very grateful I have a voice. Dance is giving me the voice, and uh, to me, that's why I teach dance. We have an open-door policy where children with various disabilities are dancing. Children who, um, with various body types are allowed to dance. So anyone is given the opportunity, equal opportunity to exercise their rights, which is the right to play, right to dance. I wanted to know about Mike's teaching approach in his particular context. This is how he describes it. 
our dance activity, we use it as a tool to bring the community together. We use it as a tool to bring in young people together. We do not focus on performances. We, yes, we do performances within the community, but they are not our priority. I asked Mike to describe a moment that illustrates the relevance of his work in the challenging context where he teaches. We did set up one show. Our first show was called Voices of Kibra. There was a lot of political tension within our neighborhood. That day we had children wearing very beautiful ballet tutus that are made here in Kibra. They were walking down towards the big field because we also wanted to perform there. But the tension was very much because it was ending up in physical fighting. And when they saw the children, almost a hundred plus walking down, everything stopped. Everything stopped and we danced. And um, at the end, you know, people came saying how grateful they are. And to me, dance was able to stop a violence that was going to erupt. Kibra is known for the wrong reasons, but not known for these kind of positive moments. So it was a very eye-opening day, and I was very grateful that day that I saw it. And even my students were so shocked that the people who were going to fight each other stopped and they watched the piece of dance together. And to me, that is the most rewarding tool ever. Like, I don't know what I would compare that to. As we have just heard from Nadia, Deborah, and Mike, many children and educators face daily challenges that are sometimes related to the most basic and fundamental living conditions. While these stories have clearly demonstrated very intense adverse conditions, the teaching profession is one that deals with adverse situations, either individual or collective, even in privileged and rich educational context. If you would like to find out more about William's work or about teaching and learning under adverse conditions, head to the Bold website. You have just listened to a new episode of Teacher's Voices. Stay tuned for the following one. We will be talking about motivation and confidence. Stay tuned. You can listen to Teacher's Voices on your favorite podcast platforms and on bold.expert. There's a new episode coming every other week. Don't forget to follow us. <laughs> <laughs>